This morning, I'd like to begin our time by kind of going on a little bit of a journey together. We live in a beautiful region. We're surrounded by mountains. It's so easy to go and explore them. In the summertime, you can head out to all kinds of hiking trails. And then in the wintertime, you can go to mountain passes for skiing. I don't know if any of you are into that. And many of these things are only a few hours away. And you can go and experience this, this wonderful beauty that we're surrounded by. It's, it's a great gift. And, and the first winter that I lived here in the Pacific Northwest, my family came up from Texas, uh, where I grew up, and we went skiing and snowboarding at Stevens Pass. Now, I remember just being dazzled by the mountains and the evergreen trees and the snow that covered all of it. This was a site that I was not familiar with. Did I mention I grew up in Texas, right? These things did not even remotely exist there. And so it was amazing. Uh, It was beautiful. We would ski during the day, and then we were staying a bit farther east from Stevens Pass near the town of Leavenworth. Now, have any of you ever been to Leavenworth? Are you familiar with this town? If you have been there, then you know that it's not just some little town, right? Leavenworth is this Bavarian-themed village. Uh, And in the winter, it kind of looks like a blown-up version of one of those Christmas towns people set up in their living rooms or something like that. It is just like setting foot inside of one of those. The buildings all have the old-style trim all over them. And then one of the primary things that sets the whole town apart is their signs. Every single sign is printed with that old Gothic-style script. And it's every one of them. It's not just cute little stores and restaurants that do this. I mean, the gas station has their sign in this, this Gothic Bavarian-style script. The, the Subway sandwich shop has their sign printed that same way. Even like the great behemoth Starbucks has been overridden. Their, their logo is not showing up. It's just that Gothic-style script, Starbucks. Okay, and, and when I first saw this, I was obsessed. I just pulled out my phone. I was taking pictures. I couldn't believe it. How did, how did this town do this? Like, they got every business, every place, everyone to print their signs the exact same way. Um, and I just became obsessed. I thought it was so amusing. And for a while, those signs became my entire existence. I was just completely baffled by them. And I just totally lost track of where we were. And it became almost this distraction uh, from, from the beauty and the snow and the mountains that we were there to see. And so if you've been there, you may have experienced the very same thing. And I share this story because something like this happens in our passage today. If you open up in John chapter 4, that's where we're going. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 4, uh, we're going to be beginning in the later part of this in verse 45. Um, For the past couple of weeks, we've been in the Gospel of John, and we've been looking at the stories of the signs that Jesus does throughout it. We've noticed that while all four Gospels do share stories of Jesus' miracles and wonders and the things that he's done, John is unique among them in that he consistently refers to these things as signs. 
He says that they're signs. And that's significant because signs are intended to point us to something. These things that Jesus does are not just for show, but rather they're meant to lead us to him, to show us who he is and who we are in him. And so last week we looked at Jesus' first sign where he turned water into wine, and today we're going to look at his second sign. And we see that there are some people who are beginning to be so enamored with his signs that that's the reason why they're following him. And so let's read this together. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 45. It says, When he, Jesus, came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. And now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And as he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. And so he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the very hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for these signs. God, I pray that as we reflect on them, as as we meditate on these words, that they would be a sign to us that would lead us to you. I pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts this morning, that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, on the surface... This story has a very similar structure to the one that we read last week, right? It's set in the same place, Cana of Galilee. Someone comes to Jesus to present a need. Last week, it was his mother saying the wine's run out. This week, it's a royal official saying that his son is ill. So then Jesus' first response is a sort of not Yet, remember last week he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And this week he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But then after some time, he does respond to the need with a sign. Last week by turning water into wine, this week by healing the boy. And in the end, people have seen his glory 
and they believe, right? And so there are a lot of similarities here in this sign that Jesus does and the one that we read about last week. And I think that John tells the story this way on purpose because he's showing us some of these similarities. And I think at the same time, by showing us similarities, he's also showing us some differences. And so by noticing these differences, I think we can begin to understand why Jesus says what he says and why he does what he does. And I think by seeing that difference, we'll be able to not just see the sign, but follow it to greater knowledge of Jesus and to who Jesus is calling us to be. So I want to pay attention to some of these differences between between the sign last week and the sign this week. And I think one of the primary differences between Jesus' first sign of water and wine and the sign we've just read about is that by now, Jesus has an audience. Jesus has people in front of him. In the first sign, Jesus was just starting out, right? If you remember last week, at the end of the story, it was only his disciples and the servants who had poured the water who knew what Jesus had done. We read last week that the chief steward, the bridegroom, and and the rest of the many wedding guests had no idea where that wine had come from. Jesus had done this first miracle in a sort of humble obscurity, right? A sort of anonymity. Jesus did this first miracle. And I think this is because that is one of God's primary modes of operation. God does occasionally do some great big things, right? He does occasionally work some mighty signs in our life or among us, but most of the time, God works in quiet and in really humble ways. Most of the time, God is working on our hearts slowly in the quiet monotony of everyday life. There are moments where we experience great spiritual breakthrough, but most of the time, our spiritual formation is quiet and slow as we faithfully live each day, one day at a time, being shaped by the Holy Spirit. So this is God's primary way of acting. And that's what we saw Jesus do in his first sign. But since then, Jesus has been to Jerusalem and back. And now Jesus has a bit of a following, right? There's an audience around him, and that audience is looking for a show, Look at verse 45. It says, The Galileans welcomed him since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. So these people welcome him not because they believe in him, but because they want to see what he's going to do. They're not there to be with Jesus. They're there to see his signs. Do you see the difference? So back in college... I'm remembering this book. I was assigned a book to read about the modern-day church. And the title of the book was Adventures in Missing the Point. And I think if the title is all that you read, you've probably learned something about the modern-day church. Because we do this very thing. I think that we, a lot like the Galileans, can miss the point of church, 
can miss the point of following Jesus. A lot of times, we come to church, or we we do these religious things not because we truly believe in Jesus, but because of what we might get from him. And this was especially true of where I grew up in the South. There's a preacher at a big church down in Texas who tells a story about kind of his own call to ministry. He says, you know, when, when he was first coming to into ministry and kind of sensing this call, he wanted nothing to do with preaching in the Bible Belt, right? He didn't want anything to do with that. He said that he'd rather be on the front lines. He'd rather be on big secular cities like San Francisco or New York or Seattle. He wanted to be where people didn't know Jesus. But then he shared that after working in the South for quite a while, he came to realize it's actually a lot harder there because people go to church as a cultural thing. Just because they're at church doesn't mean they're following Jesus. They're going to church, but they may not believe in him. They go to church the same way that people tune in to late-night television. It's the show to watch because everyone else is watching it, too. Now, we may not have that same cultural pressure up here to go to church, but we are no less likely to participate in church for the wrong reasons. I think we're no less likely to be distracted by signs, right? We can easily find ourselves in the place of the Galileans who follow Jesus not out of a deep faith, but rather because they want to see the show. And amidst this audience of people surrounding Jesus, a royal official approaches him about his son who's fallen deathly ill. And in verse 48, Jesus responds. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And at first, this seems kind of like a really heartless response, right? But although Jesus is responding to the royal official, I don't think he's primarily addressing that official. The word you in this verse gets lost in translation. The you in verse 48 is actually plural. He's addressing the crowd. That's why some other translations say, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So amidst this audience, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to put on a show. Rather, I am here to do my Father's work. And in the next chapter, in chapter 5, Jesus says, I do not accept glory from human beings. The works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me, right? So the Galileans who welcome Jesus because of what they have seen end up receiving a rebuke from Jesus. But then we keep reading in verse 49, the official says to Jesus again, Sir, Come down before my little boy dies. And Jesus responds to him, Go, your son will live. And the official trusts what Jesus has said and starts back home. 
So the Galileans received a rebuke, but the royal official receives compassion. Why is that? What's the difference between them? Well, I think perhaps the primary difference is their attitude. As we've said, the Galileans are following Jesus because he's popular. And maybe by following him, they can become popular too. Right? They come to him in order to be brought high. But the official comes to Jesus because he has already been brought low. Just look at him. We can gather a little bit from his status, that he is a royal official. That means he has resources, and he has influence. And I think there's no doubt that this man has hired great doctors to care for his son. He's undoubtedly put all of his many resources, all the ones that are at his disposal, to work, to try to solve this, and yet none of them have managed to save his son. So this man of royal status is brought low, and he makes one final desperate effort to save his son by seeking out this man that he'd heard of called Jesus. And he comes to Jesus in deep humility, And he addresses him as sir. Did you catch that when you read it? This royal official comes to Jesus and addresses him with a title of respect and dignity. Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Now, as a royal official, he probably could have ordered Jesus to do it, right? He could have said, come down come down to to my house. I need you to come here. But he doesn't do that. He comes with humility, asking and begging, laying his deepest needs before Jesus. And we see here, this is the kind of faith that God longs for. God desires for us to bring our deepest needs before him and humble vulnerability. And this is completely counter to our kind of pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps American culture, isn't it? Our culture sees vulnerability and expressing our needs as a shameful thing. One thing that, that Terry and I were talking about during the dwelling passage is the fact that Paul begins by talking about how he counts all things as loss. Our culture doesn't know how to lose things. We don't know how to be vulnerable or how to have needs. And because of this, we rarely even admit our deepest needs to ourselves, much less God or others. But God honors those who bring their needs before him, and he shows them compassion. And so the Galileans approach Jesus with a prideful desire, while the royal official approaches him with humble and desperate need. I think that's one of the differences between them. 
And there's another as well that, that we begin to see. Another difference is that the Galileans welcomed Jesus because of what they had seen. Whereas the official trusts Jesus because of what he heard. And this is a big theme that's developed throughout John. Most of us are probably familiar with that exchange between Jesus and Thomas at the end of the story. Thomas won't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead until he sees for himself. And after he does, Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now, We've got to be careful here because I think too often this theme that is developed through John is interpreted as a curse upon those who wish to see. But that's not what happened. Jesus doesn't curse Thomas. When Thomas expresses his doubt and question, Jesus doesn't curse him. He reaches out his hands. He invites Thomas to come forward, to touch, to see, to feel This theme is not a curse to those who wish to see, but rather, I think, a blessing upon those who have believed without seeing. And this is a great comfort to John's audience, and I think also to us as well. The Gospel of John, we've already talked about how it's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in a lot of ways. One of the ways that it's different is that it was written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and therefore probably written with second-generation Christians in mind. These are folks who hadn't grown up amidst Jesus' ministry, seeing these signs for themselves. They're the children of those who had done that. They had only come to know Jesus by what they've heard, not from what they've seen. And I think we're in that very same situation ourselves. We've heard about Jesus from parents and preachers, from sermons and scriptures, but we haven't seen. John says to his second-generation readers who had not seen, he says, that's okay. You're not blessed because you've seen his signs. You're blessed because you've trusted in who he is. And the same is true for us. We're not blessed because we've seen the signs. We're blessed because we trust Jesus for who he is. The Galileans wanted to see signs, but the official goes straight to the source. Goes to Jesus himself. And we too have access to that same source through the Holy Spirit. No matter the distance of space and time. Jesus is available to those who trust him and who bring their needs to him. And that's the last thing that we see in the passage. On the way home, the official discovers not only that his son lives, but that his recovery began in verse 53, the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he trusts Jesus all the more, along with his whole household. And in this final sequence, we see a few things that we've already begun to talk about. First, that Jesus is one who works his signs in the quiet. 
Jesus could have rallied the crowd of Galileans and said, come on, let's go to this guy's house, let's do it, right? He could have brought the crowd with him so that they could all witness a great sign, but he doesn't. He doesn't go with the official. He doesn't wave his hands and put on a show. Rather, he simply tells the official, go home. Your son will live. And the only one who knows that this sign happened is the official and his household. Jesus continues to work in humble, quiet obscurity because this is the way of God. God works quietly. And another thing we see is that Jesus brings about this healing from a distance. And I think that just goes to show us that no matter how far you might be from Jesus or how far you might feel from Jesus, Jesus can always span the distance. No matter how far you may feel or be, Jesus can reach you. Which is why Paul has written that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus spans any distance. Jesus can cross it. And finally, we see something we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, that after seeing all of these things, after knowing that Jesus is God, the response is to believe, is to trust him. In this story, it's not only the royal official, but also his whole household who comes to believe. And I love that the official asks his servants when the boy began to recover. I think he did this because he already knew that Jesus was going to keep his word. And then one can only assume he shared that story with his family and all those in his household. And they join him in his rejoicing. And they believe with him. And so this is the wonder of the second sign that Jesus has done. And I want to leave us with a few questions to consider as we go from here today. The first question that I think we need to ponder after reflecting on this is, what are the distractions that we have that Jesus is challenging us to remove Or maybe another way of putting it, what are the signs that he's asking us to look through in order to find him? For those of us who are church people, it may very well be our Bible studies. It may very well be our worship services. He doesn't say to get rid of the signs. He says to look through them and find him. What is it for you? What are the things that Jesus is asking you to reflect on that might get in the way of truly finding him? Or what are those things that are in your life that are good, but they're not God? 
Let them point you to Christ. The second thing I think we should consider is what are the needs that Jesus wants you to humbly bring before him? These may very well be needs that you don't even know you have yet. Because it's a scary thing to admit that we have needs. To admit that we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's a scary thing to be vulnerable. But Jesus invites us to him. How can we bring our needs truly and humbly before God and receive his compassion there? And the last question I want to leave you with is who is your household? The ones for whom you pray and the ones with whom you share. Right? This royal official has left his household and run to Jesus to beg for Jesus to come and help and do something. And then he returns to his household and he shares the story of what happened. Who is your household? It might be your actual household. But who are the people in your life that God has placed there for you to pray for? And for you to share that story of what it is that God is up to with. Evangelism isn't about walking someone through some set of things. It's simply about sharing the story of what God's doing in our own life. Who is the household that you can share this story of God in your life with? These are the questions that I invite us to wonder and discover together. Jesus changes water into wine, and he changes sickness into health. But he's not about a big show. He does it quietly, and he's doing it amongst us now, if we can wait and listen. Amen.